Tonight we'll continue in the series that we began a few weeks ago on the minor prophets with major messages. And tonight we look at these, the next minor prophet, Joel. And I hope to cover this whole book. It's not a very long book, but I want to move along with it and give you some background, some context, and then we'll consider what is the main focus of the book of Joel. The time frame for the book of Joel is about 285 years since the division of the nation of Israel in, in the days after Solomon, when it was divided into Israel to the north, Judah to the south. So it's close to 300 years from that time frame. It is 31 years or around 30 years since the destruction of Israel, the northern kingdom, at the hands of the Assyrians. So there's no mention of Israel in the book of Joel. Nobody knows the exact date or the exact time or too much information about Joel, but you can tell just in his writing a lot of information. And what, some of that is this, that he doesn't say anything about Israel. You remember Hosea said something. He was primarily to Israel before it was destroyed, but he also says something about Judah. Joel says nothing about Israel because Israel's already been destroyed. It's also 64 years approximately before the building or the founding of Rome by the two brothers, Romulus and Remus. It's about 700 years before the time of Christ. And it's believed that Joel was a contemporary with Hosea and Amos, possibly Isaiah and some of those guys. So Hosea could have been a young boy, maybe, in the days when Hosea was prophesying and Israel was about to be destroyed. So who was Joel? Well, we don't really know a whole lot about him historically. It says the word of the Lord that came to Joel, the son of Pethuel. Nobody knows who Pethuel was, but it's notable that he mentions his father's name to identify himself. So Pethuel could have been a well-known person at that time. And it, he either prophesied in Manasseh's reign, which Manasseh was a terrible king for Judah, and maybe in part of the end of maybe Ahab or some of those guys, because that would have put you back in the days of Israel. But I'm, I'm certain that he prophesied just by reading this, either during or right after the days of Jehoshaphat, king of Judah, because he mentions Jehoshaphat in the third chapter. We'll get to that. No mention of Israel, as I said, only Judah and Jerusalem in the book of Joel. The name Joel means Jah is God. Jah is a shortened name for Jehovah. So his name means Jehovah is God. And, Je and if you read the book of Joel, which I hope you do, his manner is a, more of a kind and gentle manner. And, and he doesn't do a lot of denouncing or rebuking. He, he beseeches and he laments over the condition of the nation in an effort to call the people to righteousness. You know, and let me put it this way. He was not a fire and brimstone type preacher, prophet, but he talked about fire and brimstone. Now, that's for sure. You'll see that. But as it, it happened to him, just as it did to the other prophets, that nobody believed him and they counted him as just as a fool. I think it's notable that in the New Testament, the Apostle Paul says, we preachers, ministers of the gospel, are counted fools for Christ's sake. So the world looks at what I do and what you listen to, and not just with me, but other ministers. The world looks at that and just says, that's just foolishness. It's just nonsense. Well, they did the same thing in the old days of the prophets. 
Now, Joel has an incredible vindication of his, uh, of his prophesying. And we'll find that, I'll mention it, it's in Acts, the second chapter, and also in Romans 10. We won't go there yet, but we'll hope to close, uh, mention that in a few minutes and maybe close out there. So as we look at an overview of the book of Joel, we're going to pull out some verses and just kind of hit the highlights. But we're going to be looking primarily at four days. I think that is a good way to encompass the book of Joel it covers four days, and I don't mean consecutive days, but four very important days. The first day that it covers is found in Joel, the first chapter, and we'll read in verse 2. He says, Hear this, ye old men, and give ear, all ye inhabitants of the land. Hath, th- hath this been in your days, or even in the days of your fathers? In other words, have you ever heard of anything so bad? Tell ye your children of it, and let your children tell their children, and their children another generation. And here we are umpteen generations down the road telling about this you see that which the palmer worm hath left hath the locust eaten and that which the locust hath left hath the canker worm eaten and that which the canker worm hath left hath the caterpillar eaten so this first day we'll call it the day of the locust because he is referring to i believe that he's referring to something very recent that had occurred where they had had a plague of locusts Now, it's possible, you know, again, the times can overlap, so I'm not just completely sold on exactly when his time frame is, but it's very possible that some of this could have overlapped from the days of Elijah whenever there was a famine in the land for all those years. It's possible, but, you know, if you do that, that means he did prophesy during the days of Israel before it went down, because that would have been the days of Ahab. Who knows? But maybe he's referring to that. Okay, but he is referring to a time when the palmer worm, the locust, the canker worm, and the caterpillar just wiped out everything. It was a plague. Aren't you glad we've never seen anything like that? I have a tiny, tiny, tiny little taste of, of how that feels. And it came from when I was a child, and I would walk with Dad out to the big pasture that was out behind, or used to be in front of, the old house. That was our hayfield, and I've spent more hours in that hayfield there and the chicken houses there probably than I spent in my home growing up, going round and round and round the hayfield on different tractors. But I remember the feeling of doom that I got when Daddy would go out there and the, the hay would look so pretty. And it was up and it was ready, almost ready, maybe a week or two out from being cut. And he'd get down on his knees and he'd pull that hay back and he'd say, come here and look at this. And there were worms already eating on the green shoots of the grass. And that was just doom for that cutting. It was doom. (laughs) And I felt like, oh my goodness, you know, the farm's going to fall in a hole and never survive. (laughs) Of course, what he did is we just go ahead and cut it. You know, we just go ahead and cut what was there and it would grow back. It's still growing today. But this is describing an instance where it didn't grow back. It was eaten to the nub. He describes the fig trees having the bark pulled off of them. So this was a judgment from God. You know, it's kind of disturbing, but it's also encouraging to know that God has control over such things. To put it in perspective, if God chose to right now, he could call up all of the locusts in the world. And with the locusts of the world and the palmer worms and the caterpillars, he could send Vladimir Putin's army back into Russia very quickly with locusts, a plague of locusts. He could call up the wild animals 
and say, go and chase this army back. And, and of course, I know you're saying, well, why didn't he do that? Well, you'll just have to ask him that one day when you see him in heaven, but I don't think you'll have to ask anymore when you see him. <laughs> but it's comforting knowing that he has that kind of power. You know, we say, oh, how is anybody going to fight an army like that back? And you may be thinking like I'm thinking from time to time, what if an army like that showed up on our shores? It's scary. But to think that God could send the locusts. He did that, by the way, in Egypt. He sent frogs. He sent flies. He sent locusts. He sent fire from heaven. You understand, you don't mess with God. (laughs) You understand that? It doesn't matter if it's a Russian army, a Chinese army, an American army. It doesn't matter what the army is. They cannot stand before the one who controls all the elements and the things of the world, who has ultimate say. And so apparently that's what happened here. God let these locusts and the palmer worms, the canker worm, the caterpillar. You know, some of you may not like worms. (laughs) I'm not crazy about worms. I like to use one every now and then when you go fishing. I did that growing up a good bit. But here, this was a curse. It was the day of the locusts. And he says, have any of you ever heard of this? Have any of, can you look back in history and think about what your grandpa or your great grandpa told you? Have you ever heard of anything like this? You know, this has to be of the Lord, you see. He says, awake drunkards and weep and howl because you don't have any more wine to drink because it's all been consumed. And now he begins to overlap into the second day. There's four days here. And he begins to overlap into the second day a little bit in verse 6. He says, for a nation has come up upon my land. Now, I believe that right there is a direct reference to the locusts. He often has referred in the scripture to the locusts or some type of plague as a nation of locusts. But he begins to move in the direction of the second day. And clearly, when we get to the end of this chapter... We see that he's in the second day that he wants to address, that God has told him to address. Through the rest of the chapter there from, say, verse 6 on down, he's calling upon them to repent. He says, be ashamed. You know, repent before the Lord. The vine is dried up, verse 12. The tree languishes. Gird yourselves and lament, verse 13. Howl, ye ministers of the altar. Lie all night in sackcloth. The prophet is calling upon them to repent. Ye ministers, he says, for the meat offering and the drink offering is withholding from the house of your God. Sanctify a fast, call a solemn assembly, gather the elders and all the inhabitants. Do you think they did? (laughs) I wonder. I I don't really think they did this. Now in verse 15, we come to the second day. He's overlapping from the day of the locusts of this natural God using something in nature as a judgment to God using a nation as a judgment against his nation. He says, alas, for the day, for the day of the Lord is at hand. This is another day. And I call this the day of the army, a day of fire and of fear. He says, the day of the Lord is at hand, and as a destruction from the Almighty shall it come. Is not the meat cut off before our eyes, joy and gladness from the house of our God? The seed is rotten under the clods, the garners are laid desolate, the barns are broken down, for the corn is withered. How do the beasts groan? (laughs) I think it's notable that even in this circumstance that God noticed that even the animals were groaning because they didn't have what they usually had. Isn't that interesting? How do the beasts groan? The herds of cattle are perplexed because they have no pasture. Yea, the flocks of sheep are made desolate. 
O Lord, to thee will I cry, for the fire hath devoured the pastures of the wilderness, and the flame hath burned all the trees of the field. The beasts of the field cry also unto thee, for the rivers of waters are dried up, and the fire hath devoured the pastures of the wilderness. And as you move on into chapter 2, he begins to make it a little bit clearer about what's going on. Blow ye the trumpet in Zion, and sound an alarm in my holy mountain. Let all the inhabitants of the land tremble, for the day of the Lord cometh, for it is nigh at hand. This is the same day, the day of the army. A day of darkness and of gloominess, a day of clouds and of thick darkness. As the morning spread upon the mountains, a great people and strong, there hath not been ever the like. Neither shall be any more after it, even to the years of many generations. Now he's talking about an enemy army that is coming. That in one sense, you, you might say, well, the Lord sent them or the Lord suffered them to come. Because at one point it says he marched in front of them. <laughs> and this is a classic example of where the people of God would not respond, would not repent. And the Lord just steps back and permits, suffers this army to come in and afflict his people, his nation. See? We can all experience things like that in a microcosm way in our own lives. You know, when we turn from the Lord, when we step back from serving Him, and the next thing you know, something is, is maybe we've given in to a temptation, or maybe something has come at us that hasn't normally come at us, and the next thing you know, you, when the Lord's whipping you, you know it, right? You know, my daddy never whipped me, and I didn't, I, well, I wonder why he's whipping him. Now, I have heard stories about my grandfather. B.B. Springer and his brother who got whippings every day just because the mama looked at them and thought they looked like they'd done something wrong. <laughs> and that was probably appropriate from what they tell me about those boys growing up. But every time my dad ever whipped me, I knew what he was doing that for. I knew what I had done. You know, it's not like you're going to be, well, what's the Lord doing to me here? If you have to ask that question, it's probably not the Lord. You see? Your heavenly Father, who is better than any earthly father, you will know why he is chastising you. You'll know in your heart of hearts. You'll be able to say, yeah, yeah, this has come upon me because of thus and such. If you're honest with yourself. I have never, except on accident a time or two when I reached back and accidentally spanked the wrong one. <laughs> I've never spanked my children without them knowing why I was spanking them and what they had done. So this army is spanking the nation of Judah. Notice he says, let's read. In verse 1, he says, Blow the trumpet in Zion. Verse 2, day of darkness. There have never been the like of this nation. Verse 3, a fire devoured before them. Verse 4, the appearance of them is as the appearance of horses, battle horses. And as horsemen, so shall they run. Like the noise of chariots and the tops of mountains shall they leap. Like the noise of a flame of fire that devoureth the stubble. As a strong people set in battle array. Before their face, the people shall be much pained. All faces shall gather blackness. That's an indication of starvation is what that is, when the face turns black. They shall run like mighty men. They shall climb the wall like men of war. And they shall march everyone on his ways. And they shall not break their ranks. I mean, I haven't really seen any. I've just seen a few scenes of this. But it reminds me of some of these zombie movies that are out there. You know, there's just this, this horde of, of people that just keep coming and keep coming and keep coming. These guys are just, they can't be stopped. Neither shall one thrust another. They shall walk everyone in his path. And when they fall upon the sword, they shall not be wounded. These are some tough guys. They shall run to and fro in the city. They shall run upon the wall. They shall climb upon the houses. They shall enter in at the windows like a thief. The earth shall quake before them. A huge army. 
The heavens shall tremble, the sun and the moon shall be dark, and the stars shall withdraw their shining, and the Lord shall utter His voice before His army. Did you catch that? The Lord is at the head of this army. Now when you figure out how the Lord can do that and not violate His character and not commit sin, then you are smarter than any theologian on the planet. But I can tell you, He does not violate His character. He does not violate who He is by doing this. He is just, He is right, and He is not responsible for the way that this army goes beyond the boundaries that He has set. Which He set the boundary for judgment. He's not responsible for the way they exceed that. You see, you just have to figure that one out. Now that's how sovereign God is. For His camp is very great. For He is strong that executeth His word. For the day of the Lord is great and very terrible, and who can abide it? You see, now watch this. <laughs> you remember in the last couple times, I think we mentioned this, but at least one of the sermons on Hosea, you know, the Lord said, I will have mercy and not sacrifice. And the explanation of that in Hosea was, I'll send my prophets to you. That's a mercy. I won't just stamp you out. I'll send my prophets to you to preach to you. That's a mercy of God. And that's what you got right here. It's mercy that Joel says, Therefore also now saith the Lord, Turn ye even to me with all your heart, and with fasting, and with weeping, and with mourning, and rend your heart, and not your garments. That's a very famous Bible line that a lot of people have used through the years. And it's a good line. He says, Rend your heart, and not your garments. What he's saying there, he says, Don't do what looks like you are returning to God. Because rending your, if I got up here and said, oh, I want to serve the Lord, and I ripped my jacket in two, y'all would say, wait, man, he really, he really wants to serve the Lord. He just ripped that little, you know, costly little jacket he's got on. Wow, look at him. <laughs> See, the Lord says, I don't want that. He said, I would rather you actually do what is returning to the Lord than just rip your jacket in two and make it look like you're returning to the Lord. You see that? So you can put on all the outward show that you want and you can check all the boxes that you want, but is it really returning to the Lord? It has to do with what's going on in your heart. To hold bitterness and anger and to, to hold grudges and to be standoffish and to not lay down your life and not lay down your, the things you do for the, for the name of the Lord and for the sake of the Lord. It looks good on the outside, see? But the Lord's not interested on the outside. He's interested in the heart. And he says, rend your heart and not your garments, which was a symbol, a symbol of, re of repentance. All the priests could have come together and ripped their garments and said, well, now we'll serve the Lord and gone right back to doing the same thing that they were doing. He said, I don't want to see you rend your garments. I want to see you rend your heart. Have, have, you, <laughs> have you ever done that? I tell you, it's quite an experience. I can't say that I've done it every day of my life. I can't say I've done it 10 days of my life. But I've, I've experienced that. I've experienced rending my heart. When I see my sin, and I see what I've done, and I see what I've said, and I see how I've acted, and I see how I have begrudged, or I see how I've done something I shouldn't have done, rending your heart is a very special experience with our Lord. And according to this, you can't get the rending of your heart from activity like ripping your coat or rending your garments you see this is a personal direct one-on-one -on -one thing that occurs between the heart of the child of God when it is beholden to the heart of God you see 
I tell you, that's a special thing to experience. Rend your heart and not your garments. Don't do what looks like you're returning to God. Do what is returning to God. And by the way, verse 22, the Lord speaks to the animals. You know the Lord spoke through an animal one time, you remember? But here He speaks to the animals. He says, Be not afraid, ye beasts of the field. <laughs> for the pastures of the wilderness do spring, for the tree beareth her fruit. In other words, through repentance and through turning, rending your heart and not your garments, the Lord is going to bless the land by really returning to the Lord. You know, I thought whenever Y2K came around that people would really turn to the Lord. Because, you know, and I think some people did prior to it, but then after they were like, oh, okay, no real glitch here. Some of you don't even know what Y2K is. You weren't even alive. But I'm telling you, there were some people freaking out over Y2K. I even put a few extra cans up on the shelf, you know, just in case. And I thought, maybe this is it. Maybe this is an opportunity for people to turn to the Lord. Nah. <laughs> you know, 9-11 happened. And, you know, for a couple weeks there, everybody's like, oh, Lord, help us. Oh, Lord, spare us. And then everybody just kind of goes back in the way that they were. No hearts rended. I'm not talking about individual revival here and there, but I mean sort of corporately. You know, if you think about an instance like the Great Awakening or even the Reformation, you know, people were smitten with the Lord. They were smitten with the Lord in those days. And then you come on forward, you know, and you think about, you know, maybe, you know, Hurricane Katrina or another one of the hurricanes. Or then if you think locally, you know, about maybe the, the Tuscaloosa tornado, you know, that was awful. You know, think, well, maybe God's people will get on fire for him, be smitten, be beholden to him. Well, not really. <laughs> and then you come forward to coronavirus. And, you know, I really was thinking, this is it. You know, this is it. God's, we're going to see a revival across the land. Nah, not really. <laughs> Most of the churches are losing members. You've got something that's very blessed going on right here. We have gained through coronavirus. 90% of the churches across the land have lost, and some of them have closed their doors. I'm not just talking about primitive Baptist churches. I mean, in general. Is that any different than what Joel is experiencing here? Rend your heart and not your garment. <laughs> the third day. And I call this the day of the Spirit. The third day that Joel deals with, we find, let's read, in, let's read in verse 22, and we'll read on down. Be not afraid, ye beasts of the field, for the pastures of the wilderness do spring. Verse 23, be glad then, ye children of Zion, and rejoice in the Lord your God. For he hath given you the former rain moderately, and he will cause to come down for you the rain, the former rain, and the latter rain. Verse 24, and the floors shall be full of wheat. 25, and I will restore to you the years that the locust hath eaten. The canker worm and the caterpillar and the palmer worm. My great army. Did you catch that? <laughs> My great army which I sent among you. And ye shall eat in plenty and be satisfied and praise the name of the Lord your God that hath dealt wondrously with you. And my people shall never be ashamed. And ye shall know that I am the midst of Israel and that I am the Lord your God and none else. And my people shall never be ashamed. And it shall come to pass afterward that I will pour out my spirit upon all flesh. And your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Your old men shall dream dreams. Your young men shall see visions. And also upon the servants and upon the handmaids in those days will I pour out my spirit. Is any of this ringing a bell for you? And I will show wonders in the heaven and in the earth, blood and fire and pillars of smoke. The sun shall be turned into darkness and the moon into blood before, which here's the last day, the fourth one, the great and terrible day of the Lord come. He says this day is going to come before the great and terrible day, which is the last day. Anybody, any Bible readers recognize where this is coming from? It's from the book of Acts. Jesus said in Acts 1, go to Jerusalem and wait for the promise of the Father 
which was the Holy Spirit, which was what Joel foretold right here, where the Spirit of God would be poured out upon the children of God. And they would prophesy and they would dream dreams and they would have visions. Did you know that you could find examples of every one of those things in the book of Acts? <laughs> you can find it. You can find men like Agabus. You can find men like Barnabas, men like Simeon, men like Ananias. And then there's Peter and there's Paul and there's John. And you remember a guy named Cornelius? Remember the Roman centurion Cornelius? He had a vision in the night. <laughs> and the angel of the Lord appeared to him and said, Cornelius, call for Peter to come down here and tell you what you need to do. <laughs> I tell you, I think it was either last Sunday or a couple Sundays ago, we spoke about the promise ring of the king, about how that is, that is the pouring out of the Holy Spirit on the people of God when we embrace the truth of God. And we've lost sight of that. This was a phenomenal time. This third day that he speaks of here, which was in the days of Jesus, after the resurrection, if you want to turn over to Acts, the second chapter, we read about that day as the apostles stood up and they began to preach and they spoke in these different languages and all these different 18 or 19 different countries were there with people from those countries in different languages and they heard their own language being spoken. This is the fulfillment of Joel. Look at Acts, the second chapter. And we'll read in verse 14. Because there were people there listening and they were going, what is this? You know, we're hearing people speak in an unknown tongue and we're seeing this amazing stuff happening so Peter stands up in verse 14 of Acts 2 with, he stands up with the eleven lifted up his voice and said unto them ye men of Judea and all ye that dwell at Jerusalem be this known unto you and hearken to my words for these are not drunken they said they were drunk <laughs> the way they were acting as ye suppose seeing it is but the third hour of the day nine o'clock in the morning but this is that which was spoken by the prophet Joel are you with me? <laughs> we're talking about Joel we're talking about Joel 2 and 28. He says, It shall come to pass in the last days, saith God, I will pour out of my Spirit upon all flesh, and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, and your young men shall see visions, your old men shall dream dreams, and on my servants and on my handmaids I will pour out in those days of my Spirit, and they shall prophesy, and I will show wonders in heaven above and signs in the earth beneath, blood and fire and vapor of smoke. The sun shall be turned into darkness, the moon into blood, before that great and notable day of the Lord come. Now watch verse 21. It's very important. And it shall come to pass that whosoever shall call on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Okay. Joel is quoted elsewhere in the Word of God. In Romans the 10th chapter, many of our friends, most of our friends in the denominational world, consider Romans the 10th chapter to be the Roman road of salvation. Well, Romans the 10th chapter is a road of salvation. But it is not eternal salvation. Now, if you will stay with me here for three little verses, for three little verses, you can see the significance of Joel's prophecy. You can see the significance of Peter's message embracing Joel's prophecy. And you can see the importance of how, what Paul put on this message. And I do not believe that it diminishes in any way the importance of what's going on here, but it just tells us clearly that eternal salvation is not under consideration. Think about this first of all. Joel is writing to the nation of Judah. He's not writing to people that aren't members of the nation of Judah. Does that make sense? He's not saying, okay, you people out there in the world that are not part of Judah, come and accept citizenship to become a citizen of Judah, and then you'll be a part of the Jewish nation. And neither is Peter saying to anyone 
those of you out there who are not children of God, if you'll just come on and you'll just accept this, then you'll have salvation and you can become a part of those that are going to heaven. He's not saying that. No more than Joel was speaking to anyone other than the citizens of the nation of Judah. Okay? This is important because it has to do with deliverance. It has to do with being spared. <laughs> it has to do with your experience here in time. Is that not what Joel was preaching to them? Repent. Rend your hearts and not your garments. You see? And so Peter says here, Joel applies to you today as he spoke this in the book of Acts and it applies in this way. It's being fulfilled now. What you're seeing and, and what we're doing is a literal fulfillment of the book of Joel in those verses there. And it says that whosoever shall call on the name of the Lord shall be delivered. That's what Joel says. And Peter says, whosoever shall call on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Those are not contradictions. You see, when you see something in the, Old, in the New Testament, you should go back and read what it says in the Old Testament. What was Joel telling them to be delivered from? <laughs> from the utter destruction and judgment that was coming upon that nation. You see? What, what, is, what is Peter telling them to be delivered from? Judgment is coming on Jerusalem, upon the nation of Judah. It's going to be wiped out in about 30 years. In the days of General Titus, who came from Rome and besieged the city, and millions of people were killed. That's where Jesus speaks in Matthew 24, Matthew 25. He says, when you see those things happening, He says, flee to the mountains. Sadly, some of God's children didn't get out of Jerusalem before it was destroyed in AD 70, and it was horrible. Story for another day. The last days of Jerusalem. Horrible, horrible One of the worst times that's ever occurred in the history of the world. People were eating each other, literally. And Peter says, deliver yourself from this judgment that's coming. Deliver yourself from you thinking that you're working your way to heaven under Moses' law. You see, how do we know that? Watch. Back in Acts 2, he says, verse 21, And it shall come to pass that whosoever shall call on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Flip the page. If your page flips, mine does. <laughs> and it says in verse 40, with many other words, Peter, did he testify and exhort, saying, save yourselves from hell, from the lake of fire? No, a thousand times no. From this untoward or crooked generation. You see, do you think Peter ever lost his train of thought? I don't think he did. He's under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. He's saying, this is a fulfillment of Joel. And Joel said, if you will follow the Lord, call upon the name of the Lord, follow the Lord in the Christian church, in the, in the New Testament church, be baptized, you will deliver yourself from the certain destruction that's coming upon Jerusalem because you won't be living there. And you'll deliver yourself from the pain and the burden of thinking that you're working your way to heaven. And he says here, I want you to deliver yourself, save yourself from the crooked generation. That message is still pertinent today, brothers and sisters. It's still here today. Save yourself from this crooked generation. That literally means scoliosis. It's where the it's crooked. It's just something that can't be straightened. Come out of that generation. Be ye separate, as the Apostle Paul said. With many other words, he, he testified and exhorted and said, Save yourself from this untoward generation. And those that gladly received the word were baptized. And the same day there were added unto them about 3,000 souls. And y'all remember I've been preaching on this for several weeks, maybe months. And they continued steadfastly fastly in the apostles doctrine how do they save themselves they continued in the apostles doctrine they continued in fellowship they continued in breaking of bread and they continued in prayers turn over to romans 10 
hold those together. Romans 10 is a road to salvation, but it is not eternal salvation. Romans 8 is the Roman road to eternal salvation. For whom he did foreknow, he also did predestinate. Whom he predestinated, then he also called. Whom he called, then he also justified. Whom he justified, then he also glorified. But Romans 10 is definitely a type of salvation. The beginning of the chapter sets the tone for the chapter. Brethren, my heart's desire and prayer to God for Israel is that they might be saved. Same word used by Peter. Saved. Saved from what? For I bear them record that they have a zeal of God. If a person has a zeal of God, that means they're born of God. They're already God's child. I bear them record. I'm telling you now, these are children of God, but they don't have the knowledge that they need. Where does that knowledge come from, Paul? He says they ignore, are they being ignorant of God's righteousness, that's Christ's work, and going about to establish their own righteousness. You know, they've made their choice. They've kept the law. They've walked the aisle. And they think all of those things, and they've accepted, and they've prayed the prayer, and they've been baptized, and they think those things are going to get them to heaven. But they're laboring under a false pretense. Christ's work is what gets you to heaven. They need that knowledge so they can rest in the work of Christ. They being ignorant of God's righteousness and going about to establish their own righteousness have not submitted themselves unto the righteousness of God. Well, Paul, tell us what is the righteousness of God. What do you mean? I've done this all my life. I walked the aisle. I did this. I said that. I prayed this. I prayed that. What is the end of the law for righteousness? Because I want to know. I need rest. He says Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone that believeth. (laughs) That's the gospel. It's the same thing Peter's preaching. He says, Joel has been fulfilled here before your very eyes. And you call upon the name of the Lord. Who is the Lord? It's Christ. Oh, Lord, save me. Guess what? If you call upon the name of the Lord, you're already saved. Christ is the end of the law for righteousness. But the key to that, that's a fact that nobody can take away. But when it comes down to you and your little life and my little life, We're called upon as born-again children of God to believe it. You see, there's a big difference between believing it and not believing it. And these are born-again children of God who were not believing it because they'd been deceived by false teaching. Paul says, my heart's desire and prayer to God is that they might believe it, is that they might be spared from the, the burden that they're under. You see? And so he goes on and describes Moses That righteousness which was under the law. And then he describes that compared to the righteousness of Christ. And then in verse 8 he says, But what does the righteousness say when it comes to Christ? The word is nigh thee. It's in your mouth. It's in your heart. You see, it's already there. he's, He's calling them to let out and speak what is already there. You know, today many say, get him in there. You know, let him in there. You know, find a way to bring him in. But but here Paul says... He's already there. All you got to do is just, just say it, you see? And there's a deliverance there. If thou shalt confess with thy mouth the Lord Jesus and shalt believe in thine heart that God hath raised him from the dead, thou shalt be saved. Same saved that Peter used. Same saved that Paul used at the beginning of the chapter. Same word for delivered over in the book of Joel. See? For the Scripture saith, and that's Joel, verse 11, Whosoever believeth on him shall not be ashamed... For there is no difference between the Jew and the Greek. For the same Lord over all is rich to all that call upon Him. For And here's Joel again. For whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved, shall be delivered. Brothers and sisters, this is not the way to get to heaven. 
This is the way to get out of natural Jerusalem. This is the way to get out of the natural burden of working your way to heaven. This is the way that you rest in the work of Christ by just saying, I believe it. <laughs> you see, I could deny all day long that I'm the son of Harold McCool. I, I just don't believe it. <laughs> I'm just being facetious now, hypothetical. <laughs> if I had never met my dad, and my mom said, that's your dad. I, no, I just don't believe it. It still doesn't change the fact that he's my dad, you see? I can deny it all day long, but when I embrace it, you know, I'm very proud of that. I'm very happy with, about that fact. You see, believing it, owning it, confessing it is a deliverance that invokes the Holy Spirit of promise. And remember, the Holy Spirit of promise is not the new birth. You can't invoke it. You can't say it. You can't confess it unless the new birth is already there. You see? Oh, I tell you, the Word of God's beautiful. Okay, the fourth one in Joel, the second chapter, he begins to allude to it in verse 31. The sun shall be turned into darkness, the moon into blood, before the great and terrible day of the Lord come. I want to leave you with this. In Joel, the third chapter, he begins talking about the great and terrible day of the Lord. He says, verse 2, I will also gather all nations, will bring them down to the valley of Jehoshaphat. That's why we think he was around the time of Jehoshaphat. And Jehoshaphat was a pretty good king of Judah. And will plead with them there for my people and for my heritage Israel, whom they have scattered among the nations and parted my land. Now look, there's a lot of speculation on what this day is. I believe there, shouldn't be no, I believe there should be no doubt that this day is the final day. It's the day of judgment. It says that he would... They would, there would be a harvest, just like Jesus speaks of in Matthew 25. It also is referred to in the book of Revelation. Notice what he says. He calls it the valley of, of Jehoshaphat. He also calls it the valley of decision. He says, verse 3, I want you to think about what's on the Lord's mind on this last day. You say, how can all this wickedness just go on and on and on? All the abortion, all the murder, all of the... the backdoor dealing, all of the bully tyrants in the world like this guy who's trying to run over a country over there in the, uh, in the Ukraine. Notice what the Lord says in verse 3. They have cast lots for my people and have given a boy for a harlot and sold a girl for wine that they might drink. I hate to say, but I know exactly what that looks like because I have seen mothers and fathers who would sell their children in order to get another hit of meth or another hit of some kind of drug. You see what's on the Lord's mind? It's the day of judgment. It's the day of reckoning. It's the day of decision. It's God's decision, you see? He says, Yea, and what have you to do with me, O Tyre and Zidon? By the way, Jesus mentioned them. And all the coasts of Palestine. Let's go on down. He says, Because ye have taken my silver and my gold and have carried it into your temples. The children also of Judah and the children of Jerusalem have ye sold unto the Grecians into slavery that ye might remove them far from their border. See what's on the Lord's mind. The Lord says, I've got a controversy and I'm fixing to settle all debts. Behold, I will raise them out of the place where ye have sold them. I will return your recompense upon your own head and I will sell your sons and your daughters into the hand of the children of Judah. Verse 9, proclaim ye this among the Gentiles. Prepare war. Wake up the mighty men. Let all the men of war draw near. Let them come up. Beat your plowshares into swords. Famous verse there. And your pruning hooks into spears. Let the weak say, I am strong. Assemble yourselves and come, all ye heathen. Gather yourselves together round about. He says, 
assemble yourselves. Let the heathen be wakened, verse 12. Come to the valley of Jehoshaphat, for there will I sit to judge all the heathen round about. Put ye in the sickle, for the harvest is ripe. Jesus said, I will send forth my angels to harvest the people of God from this earth at the end of time. Get you down. The press is full. The fats overflow. Their wickedness is great. Multitudes, multitudes in the valley of decision. That word decision right there is an interesting word. The, the root word of the word decision is called the threshing sledge. And the threshing sledge was a, was a device that they used whenever they would bring the, the wheat and the corn and the different things into the threshing floor. And they would take this very heavy round a device, kind of like a rolling pin, but large and metal. And they would roll it over the grain and it would thresh out. It would knock out the good seed and separate it from the chaff, you see. So the Lord says, this is the valley of decision. This is the valley of the threshing sledge. This is where I will come and I will separate who are mine and I will separate who are not mine. You see? And all debts will be settled. By the grace of God, your debt will settle on the cross, praise God. But there's other debts that the Lord has that are going to be paid. See? I told you Joel was a little bit of fire and brimstone. <laughs> multitudes, multitudes in the valley of decision. For the day of the Lord is near in the valley of decision. The sun and the moon shall be darkened. The stars shall withdraw their shining. The Lord shall roar out of Zion. What roars? Oh, you know what roars? A lion roars. And the lion of the tribe of Judah will be roaring on this day. He will roar. The lion will roar out of Zion. <laughs> And utter his voice from Jerusalem, the heavens and the earth shall shake, but the Lord will be the hope of his people. Did you catch that? The Lord will be the hope of his people as we gather down to that great threshing floor to watch the Lord bring his threshing sledge across the wicked of the world and separate the sheep from the goats. It says the Lord will be the hope of his people. You see, he's got a people down there and he's not going to thresh them. You know why? Because he threshed his son. He ran the threshing sledge of his wrath across his son on the cross, you see. And that way, you will not have to suffer the threshing sledge of God in the valley of decision. The decision's already been made for you before the foundation of the world he decided for you. And on the cross, he paid for your sins, you see. This is the decision of all of the wicked for the rest of eternity. The Lord shall roar out of Zion. So shall ye know that I am the Lord your God dwelling in Zion, my holy mountain. Then shall Jerusalem be holy, and there shall be no strangers pass through her anymore. Sounds like Isaiah 35. And it shall come to pass in that day that the mountains shall drop down new wine, and the hills shall flow with milk, and all the rivers of Judah shall flow with waters, and a fountain shall come forth out of the house of the Lord, and shall water the valley of Shidom. Egypt shall be a desolation. Edom shall be cast into the desolate wilderness for the violence against the children of Judah because they have shed innocent blood in their land. But Judah shall dwell forever. Brothers and sisters, for all the life of me, it sounds like a new heavens and a new earth. <laughs> this is when it's all over. Four days. He says, for I will cleanse their blood that I have not cleansed. For the Lord dwelleth in Zion. You know what I think that means? He's going to cleanse the blood of the wicked in the lake of fire for all eternity. He didn't cleanse their blood on the cross. He's going to cleanse their blood for eternity. It's going to take eternity, which is a misnomer. It's going to take that much time to cleanse their blood. They're not cleansable, you see. Egypt will be gone. Edom will be gone. The wicked will be gone. And we'll have a new heavens and a new earth. Day four. Praise God. I hope that's been profitable. And I hope that is a good understanding, a good overview of another minor prophet with a major message. What a major message this guy had. So I leave you with, let's rend our hearts.
and not our garments. Let's don't give a show of repentance. Let's give real repentance, which comes from your heart beholding the heart of God.